Well, as we join with our friends in the Community Life Center this morning, I want to invite you to turn in the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be sharing a passage out of the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We will begin together in verse 12. I would invite you to follow along as we read together. Speaking to a church that was struggling with internal division, here's how Paul articulates the matter and offers them a way forward. He writes, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. <clears throat> well, a curious thing happened to me sometime around the first of the year. I laid down in bed one night to read and realized I couldn't see the words on the page. I could see the page, and I was pretty sure the words were there, but they were all fuzzy. Then I discovered that if I held my arms out at full length, suddenly the words came into clear view. And that's when it hit me. So that's what my parents have been doing all of these years. 
I tried to play it off and pretend like it wasn't happening. But after a few weeks, I realized I had a choice to make. I could either tie two-by-fours to my arms or I could go to the eye doctor. I chose the latter and discovered that my eyes have now made just enough trips around the sun that they need progressive lenses. Now, I was doing okay with having reached that stage of life until last weekend when we were on a retreat with our youth and during a break in the action on Saturday afternoon during a pickup basketball game I heard one of our middle schoolers speaking to one of his friends referring to me as quote that old guy over there <laughs> I was tempted to set him straight but at that point I was trying to remember too hard where I would put the ibuprofen and it didn't really matter now my experience with my eyes points out something interesting and obvious. We can usually tell right away when something about our body isn't working properly. Occasionally there are problems that are hidden from our view, but, but when it's in its natural state, the body works together with every part functioning in the way it was supposed to, and when that ceases to happen, we almost instantly can tell it. In fact, our bodies are so finely tuned to work together in such a balanced and coordinated way that really about the only time we are aware of our bodies is when something isn't working right. That's all the more amazing when you stop to consider just how remarkably complex the body is. Take the average human brain, for example. It weighs about three pounds. And yet in that three pounds of matter, are over a hundred billion, billion with a B, 100 billion neurons in your head right now. All of them firing in an intricate and delicate and coordinated way to enable you to manage your thoughts, your emotions, your perceptions, your movements, your words. It's the control center and it works miraculously. Because God in His infinite wisdom has designed the body to function together in a unity of personhood in such a way that the end product is you being you and me being me. And so it's not surprising then that our passage of Scripture today might use the body as an analogy or as an image to illustrate how God has designed the church to function. The church as well is this incredibly complex organism made up of all sorts of different parts and pieces, no two of them exactly the same. I'm speaking, by the way, of you and me. Do you know that in the history of the universe, no two snowflakes have ever been identical to each other? The same is true of us. There's never been one exactly like me, and there's never been one exactly like you. My sister is the mother of two identical twin boys. They look so much alike that when we are together for a short period of time, I can't tell them apart. I have to say, no, which one are you? I will, I Charlie, they say. But after a while, when we've been together for a few days on a trip together, let's say, I can start to tell them apart. Because while they may look the same, they are not the same. Their personalities are different. Their behaviors are different. 
No two people are identical. And yet, when the church is functioning as God designed it to function, all of those unique parts and pieces, that is to say, you and me and everybody around us, functions together in such a way that it performs one unified purpose. That purpose is to proclaim and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the church can only do that fully and completely when we do it together. Now, the passage that we just read came from a letter that was written by a man named Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Paul had actually been the founding apostle of this church. We read about his visit there in the book of Acts. And as he often did, he spent time there. He preached the gospel there. People were converted there. The church was founded there. But then Paul, as he often did, moved on to the next stop on his missionary journey. But Paul stayed in touch with his friends in Corinth. He kept up with what was going on in that congregation. There were personal messengers that passed back and forth bringing updates. And there were also letters of correspondence written back and forth from the church to Paul, from Paul to the church. And the book of 1 Corinthians, as it appears in our New Testament, is one of those letters. We're actually reading somebody else's mail here. And through his correspondence, Paul has become aware of a problem, several problems, in fact, that exist in Corinth. The church is facing some critical challenges. And Paul writes as their founding pastor to offer them pastoral guidance on how to see their way through it. Now, chief among those problems were a series of divisions that had arisen amongst them. And had we more time this morning, we could go through the book chapter by chapter and kind of lift out some of the different issues that were causing them to divide from each other. But in the interest of time, we'll jump right to the passage we've read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the issue that's named is the division that exists in the church over spiritual gifts and how they function and the role they play in the life of the church. Now, we don't have time this morning to do an in-depth study of spiritual gifts, but, but to just offer a brief overview. The issue of spiritual gifts is addressed directly in three different places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. And to put it as simply as possible, spiritual gifts are unique spiritual abilities or attributes that the Holy Spirit places into the lives of individual believers once they are born again and become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, these spiritual gifts are not necessarily the same as natural skills or abilities that you might have, though it might not be impossible that there would be some overlap. It might not be surprising, for example, that someone who has the spiritual gift of teaching might also be an educator in their professional life. Or, or that, that someone who has the gift of administration might also work in an administrative role. But spiritual gifts and natural abilities are not one and the same. Natural abilities are things that we can hone through our own skills. Spiritual gifts are gifts from the Holy Spirit that are given to us to accomplish spiritual purposes within the larger life of the church. Now Christians sometimes disagree over exactly how many spiritual gifts there are. Some people will say that the only spiritual gifts that exist 
are the ones that are named explicitly in these three different passages that I mentioned. Others will say that the listing that we have in these three places are just illustrative of a broader listing of gifts. And I'm not going to try to settle that issue this morning. But here's what we can all agree upon. Here's what's clear and simple from the scriptural witness. First, every believer is given at least one spiritual gift. Every believer. These giftings are, are not the special province of a special class of religiously elite. You don't have to attain some higher level of enlightenment or spiritual maturity. The Spirit gives gifts to all of the followers of Jesus. But second, and just as important, no individual believer is given all of the gifts that are necessary for the church to function. By design, by intention, by purpose, God has created it in such a way that we have to rely upon one another in order for the church to function. We have to bring those various gifts together in a cooperative and coordinated way so that together as one body we function in the way that God designed us to. And the problem is that the folks in Corinth were forgetting that. They were overlooking how essential it was for all of the gifts to function together because some of them were beginning to act as though their gifts were somehow more important or more impressive or more significant than the others. That somehow they were perhaps more indispensable to the life of the church. And the result was a spirit of division. Some people saw themselves as more important and others as less so. And the result was that people were pulling apart from one another instead of working together. And Paul wrote to challenge that way of thinking, to show them how incorrect and frankly how spiritually dangerous and deadly it was. And to do so in this part of his letter, he uses the imagery of the body. He makes the very obvious point that as we have already said, the body can only fully function properly when all the parts are doing its parts. Now, as with the human body, so it is with the body of Christ. Some parts of the body are going to be more visible than others. Just by their nature, they're going to be seen. Some parts of the body are going to be more visually impressive than others. Some parts of the body are going to be more modest, more hidden, and more out of view. Some parts of the body are even going to be more, shall we say, awkward than others. Every part of the body is necessary if the body is going to function properly. And the same is true with the church. In order for the church to function as God designed it, every part has to play its part. Every part has to be valued. Every part has to be honored. Every part has to be nurtured. And every part has to be used. Now, like a lot of scripture we need to use our biblical imaginations when it comes to applying this passage to us as was usually the case Paul was writing here to address a very specific situation a specific set of circumstances that had existed at a specific time and place and in this case there was open conflict and division and infighting within the church in Corinth over the issue of spiritual gifts and Paul was trying to resolve that matter for them Now, the last time I checked that wasn't necessarily a raging issue here at our church 
There's no open conflict that I am aware of. I am not aware that anybody woke up this morning coming to church ready to argue that their gift's more important than somebody else's. I haven't been in any conversations with anybody recently that bordered on whether or not the gift of administration or the gift of faith was more important. I just haven't heard those kinds of conversations going on around us. But that doesn't mean that Paul's words here don't apply to us. Because the same underlying issue that was at stake in Corinth is the same underlying issue that's always at stake in every church, including ours. And that issue can be expressed in the form of a question. And it's the question I want us to take our last few moments together to seek to answer. The question is this, what is it that unifies us? What is it that draws us together as a church? How is it that we are enabled to function together to accomplish God's purposes for us? The answer to that question might be a little bit more challenging than we first realized because as was the case in Corinth, so it is with us that we sometimes are going to be tempted to answer that question in the wrong way. We are tempted to ground our unity together in something other than the transcendent presence of Jesus Christ. That's what was happening in Corinth. It can happen here. Let me give you a few examples. There is a temptation, for example, to ground our unity as a church in our connection and our relationship to specific staff members. Now, why do I raise that question? Because it was a burning issue in Corinth, and it's always present in the modern church. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There was conflict within the church in Corinth over which leader was more important. Some people claimed unity to Paul, some people claimed unity to a leader named Apollos, other people claimed to be a disciple of the Apostle Peter, and what you ended up with were these competing cults of personality, these factions with each person claiming loyalty to their leader instead of everybody functioning together. We can fall into the same trap. By seeing our connection primarily to our relationships to individual staff members. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying to you this morning. Staff members are vitally important. Staff help to set the tone and the direction of our ministries. And we are blessed with thoughtful and competent staff. And I look forward to coming to work every day because of the people I get to work with. They are committed. They are creative. They are loyal They are friendly, they encourage me, they challenge me. I am a better person because of the people that I work with every day. And we are blessed to have the staff that we do. But as we have begun to see in the last few years, church staff invariably go through seasons of transitions. It's just an inevitable part of the ebb and flow of life. We've seen it here. When I came on staff here about five years ago, I was one of the youngest people in the building. Now I'm one of the old guys. That's how much change has happened just in the last few years, and we're not done yet. We've got new staff that we're going to hope to be bringing on board in the next few weeks. We've got another search still ongoing for a staff position that's still unfilled, and we've got other staffing needs that we haven't even identified yet. There's going to be more transition to come and if we try to tie our unity primarily to our personal relationships to individual people we're setting ourselves up for a challenge 
Our unity with one another is tied ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ because he is the ultimate leader who does not change and who does not go away and who is here for all eternity. And it is in our shared faith in him that we find our true connection to each other. And if we ground our connection in him, then our connections to one another have something solid to stand on. Related to that, another potential false source of our unity is our personal familiarity with each other. And this one requires a little bit of explanation, so let me see if I can tell you what I'm trying to communicate here. It is understandable, and it is desirable, and it is good that we desire to build close personal relationships with our fellow church members. In fact, one of the key initiatives of our new strategic plan is to know each other. We live in a culture that ironically makes us strangers out of each other. I say ironically because thanks to technology, we can be connected to more people in more places at one time than ever before, and yet there does still seem to be a growing sense of isolation in our culture. People feel cut off from each other, and we as a church have to actively push back against that by, by building meaningful connections to each other. But we also have to recognize a simple fact. And the fact is, because we are a larger church, not a mega church, certainly, but a larger church, it's going to be impossible for us to all know each other in a deep, personal way. Social scientists have done some interesting studies to try to figure out what is the maximum number of people with whom the average person can sustain stable social relationships. In other words, how many people can you realistically know in your life? Now, different studies have produced different answers, but they all kind of fall within a range. Some studies suggest that the number is as few as 100. In other words, about 100 relationships is all you can meaningfully sustain in your life. Others say, no, no, it's higher than that. It's 150. Some say it's 200, 250. I've even heard one suggest that it's as high as 300, that you can comfortably know and maintain relationships with as many as 300 people. But whatever the number is, it points out a simple fact. There is only so much I can do in my limited self. There are only so many personal relationships that you and I can individually sustain based on our own human efforts. Now, Consider that on an average Sunday, we have somewhere close to 900 people worshiping here. Do the math. You are not going to know 900 people. It isn't possible. And so if we're going to ground our unity as a church in our ability to deeply know one another, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment. And by the way, let me be sure and clarify, that is not the result of the fact that we have four different worship services. Even if we were all worshiping together in one room in one hour, we could still only maintain so many personal relationships with each other. Now, as an aside, this is one of the reasons why Sunday school is such a vital part of our spiritual growth. Because Sunday school is where we develop those intimate connections with a smaller group of people who can carry us forward through time and, and journey with us. And our minister of education paid me to say that, by the way, so... But the broader point is this, if we're going to stay connected with one another in a vital way, it's going to take something more than our ability to be chummy with each other. 
By no means does that mean we should seek to be cold and impersonal to one another. We must always look to reach out and form new relationships. But the primary source of our connection to one another is our unity through Jesus Christ. Even if you and I don't know one another in a deep personal way, if you and I both know Jesus and we are sharing together in the mission that he gives us, then we are bound together eternally in ways that you and I could never create just on the basis of our human efforts. He is the source of our unity. One final temptation that I'll share with you this morning, and I've saved this one for the last because... I think it speaks more heavily to where we are culturally right now. We've got to avoid the temptation to tie our unity to a belief that we share a common social status. And from the outside looking in, there is a perception that we all are the same, that we all come from the same background, culturally, economically, even racially, but that's a false perception. All outside appearances aside, this congregation comes from a wide array of, of backgrounds and experiences. And the more I get to know you and become familiar with your stories, the more deeply I come to appreciate that. Some of us in this congregation are financially prosperous and some of us in this congregation struggle to make it from paycheck to paycheck. Some of us in this congregation have deep family roots that run generations back in this local community. And some of us in this congregation have transplanted here from other parts of the country. Some of us here in this congregation can trace our ancestral line through a particular cultural heritage. And some of us in this congregation descend from a cultural mix and histories. And so let's be clear. Any effort to tie our unity to one another on the basis of those things is an exercise in idolatry. I mean, we live in an age of increasing cultural and racial conflict. You don't need me to tell you that. All you've got to do is watch the evening news. In the last few weeks and months, we've seen a violent attack at a synagogue in California, at churches in Sri Lanka, and at a mosque in New Zealand. And what all of those violent attacks have in common is a desire by some individual or some group to claim the superiority of their religious or cultural tribe over another. They are violent expressions of a desire to eliminate those who are different from us. And in that climate and in that kind of world, the best and most Christian response we can have is to reclaim our identity as followers of a crucified Messiah. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that when Jesus went to the cross, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility that at that time separated Jews from Gentiles, which was about as culturally far apart from one another as you could possibly get. In his cross, he demolished that dividing line and brought those two together to make one new humanity out of them. Because in the end, what draws us together is not the fact that we are all like each other because we aren't. The only thing that draws us together is that we share equally and fully in our need for his grace. Because he and he alone can unify us. 
What is it that draws us together? What is it that makes us function as one body? It's not us. It's not our abilities. It's not our perspectives. It's Him. It's the fact that He was willing to look upon us with mercy and draw us into His family. As you see behind me here, we're set up for a unique performance this afternoon and again this evening, a program we're calling Kaleidoscope. Some of you may have had one when you were a child, that toy you looked through that through a series of mirrors took some strange and random objects and out of it created a beautiful and symmetrical presentation, something that pleases the eye. It's yet another analogy of what God does through His church. He takes folks as different and distinct as you and me and He brings us together and out of us He makes one body that exists for one purpose and that is to glorify Him. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. Let's pray together. Father God, you are three, yet you are one. And in that unity of diversity, you have brought about our creation and our salvation. Draw us together again, O oh God, as one unified body, seeking to serve you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The key is not simply that we are a body, it is that we are the body of Christ. Only because we belong to Him. As we close out our time of worship, we have an opportunity to reflect on that and respond to that. If you are here and you've never made a profession of faith, you've never become a part of His body by declaring yourself His follower, then as we sing in a moment, I want to invite you and give you the opportunity to respond to that. Would you come forward while we sing? We'll pray together as you begin that journey. If you're looking for a church home, a place to unite with others, to claim your part in the body, we want to be that for you, and we would invite you to come. But The call is to all of us to hear his invitation to be and live as his body. Let's stand and worship him together. <clears throat>